This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 47 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back this week. We took last week off. It was a short week for me. I took uh, my only real vacation of the summertime, took a few days, went to Bend, but we're back this week here in our virtual studio. Welcome back, Steve-O. Hey, Tucker. Good to be back. It's a lovely day out there. We're supposed to have triple-digit temperatures potentially in the next few days, so summer is in full force. They call this the dog days of summer. I think we're officially in summer. I think it took us until the second week of August to get there weather-wise, but I would say we're officially there. Interesting factoid. Do you know why they call the dog days of summer? I do not know, but it'll be a Snapple fun fact of the day, so let's <laughs> let's have it. I actually Googled this a long time ago. It has to do with the stars. There is a constellation that, I don't know if it was the shape of a dog or had something to do with it, but it has to do with the alignment of stars this time of year so they call it sometime in August, mid-August, late July, basically the hottest part of summer, but it has to do with the alignment of stars. So there you go. <laughs> you know, uh, Chris in my office is full of useless facts like that, like uh, why they used to call people or why people are called dirt poor. Uh, there was a few other ones that were kind of interesting, too, that uh, he, he told me and Dan one day, which were interesting. But now I know why it's the dog days of summer. And, and why, what was the reason for the dirt poor? I believe uh, it was because people that were very poor used to live in houses without floors. And so they were dirt poor. So they'd have to sweep the dirt, you know, on the ground. Got it. And then Got there was a few that other ones sense. that were kind of interesting. That makes too, sense. But, but anyway. Uh, with that being said, we took last week off. You've probably had a lot going on. I know you got a busy week this week. What's uh, What's been shaking in your business? What's been going on out in the real estate trenches for you the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's been incredibly busy, both on the broker and agent side, and then also at PPG here on, as a brokerage. On the broker side, we've had a couple rough situations that I'll chat about real quick, just to kind of heads up to, to people out there, a couple challenges we dealt with. One had to do with lending. I talked about it. In fact, we're going to talk about it later in this podcast. I had some clients that were moving up from the Bay Area, and it was a first for me. They had a tiny house. They were looking to buy a house, and they wanted to park their tiny house in the backyard, and they wanted to rent the house out. Now, I, I gave them multiple disclaimers, check with the city, check with the city, and then when you're done with that, check with the city to make sure that works. We're seeing a lot of news about that now, and we'll talk about it later in the show. But that isn't even actually the main part of this story. The main part of this story is we referred them to our preferred lender. They were pretty adamant that they wanted to go with Wells Fargo. They said they belonged to the private banking side of Wells Fargo. They had all sorts of preferential treatment, yada, yada, yada. And you know, we, we start breezing along. We find finally the, the perfect place for them. They're excited. It's got the perfect backyard for them. Everything at the location's great. We make an offer. We get it accepted. Right away, red flags started happening with Wells Fargo. Just things weren't happening on time. I should also mention they did talk to my preferred lender. And my preferred lender said, because they owned a house in California that they were going to keep as a rental, my preferred lender said, you need to have a rental agreement in place and potentially a deposit of some sort. I don't know all the specifics here. They didn't like that. And they loved that Wells Fargo said, you don't have to have that. Well, later on, guess what Wells Fargo said they did have to have? <laughs> that. <laughs> and... Uh, Beyond that, I mean, this transaction just drug on and drug on with Wells Fargo. We got 
they pack their bags down in California. They drive up here. We've already extended like three, four weeks at this point. They're driving up here thinking docs are about to go out and they're going to sign and then move in their house. All of a sudden, Wells Fargo says, oh, not only did you need to have a rental agreement, which they scrambled and got and found a renter, but we need an appraisal on your rental property. And, well, you and I know how long appraisals are taking these days. So this looked like it was going to go another six weeks. These guys were flat-out homeless. They were staying in an Airbnb. Just a horrific situation. I had multiple phone conversations with them. Did they, uh, not to cut you off, but just so that our listeners and myself can clarify, did they want an appraisal on that home in California to make sure they had enough equity in it to be able to utilize it as rental income property? Because I remember correct. there's there's yep. a, there was a guideline yep. about that a yep. while ago, but it sounds like it's still in effect with Wells Fargo. Well, it is with Wells Fargo. I don't think my preferred lender needed the appraisal on that property. I think they just needed the rental agreement. It was just one of those stories that just frustrates you where, you know, one lender gives the upfront truth and says, this is what we need. Another one doesn't. And the client goes with the, you know, they go with the one that says what they want to hear. And in reality, they both needed the same thing. One just was more clear about it up front. So, I mean, they had a horrific situation. I mean, I was talking to these people 8 o'clock at night, multiple nights in a row, trying to figure out where they're going to live. I was giving them recommendations. They finally scrambled. I mean, it does have a happy ending. They, it has a rare happy ending because this doesn't <laughs> happen often. But they scrambled and went to family and got cash and paid cash and then are now working with my preferred lender to refinance the house. But just a horrific story and just such a reminder about why it's so important you know, for our clients to go with a lender we know and trust. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, having that, local. that having that is is number one takeaway from that story. Number two is it's good to have family with money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the other thing that you know, it, it's a good reminder of, and I've always told, reminded my team of this: one transaction going sideways takes as much time as ten going smoothly. I mean, the 10 that are going smoothly, it's like a boy here, it's congrats there, you know, it's just checking in, just want to see, is there anything I can do? Oh, okay, no, everything's on track, great. The one that's going sideways just decimates your schedule. I mean, it's just call after call and panic. And remember, it's not just calls with the, the client, it's the listing agent, it's the lender, it's the, you know, it's all these different parties that you're coordinating and, and repeating the same story over and over to. One last thing on that, that that was so frustrating for us and and why, again, just that relationship, having a lender in the transaction that you have some type of relationship, why it's so powerful. At one point, my buyer's agent, this was fairly early on, my buyer's agent called the Wells Fargo lender who was down in the Bay Area. And that Wells Fargo lender said, you know what? I don't even have to answer your questions. You're not my client. It's so frustrating. I mean, so our hands are completely tied as to any expertise we can give to the transaction, any communication. So at that point, the the client not only is, you know, the lone ranger and finding their path through this, but they're also our sound piece. They're, we have to go to them to get, you know, secondhand information on what's going on with their transaction. So super, super frustrating. The other thing that happened on the broker side that I'll say real quick was, I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast, but I had a client who called me in February. He has a cute little 800-square-foot house on Clinton, close in southeast, and we're getting ready to put it on the market. He had a roommate in the house. All of a sudden, this is back in February, he puts the brakes on and calls me. He goes, hey, Steve, you're not going to believe this, but my roommate will not leave. Oh, and yeah. So 
Long story short, I mean, I don't even know all the the details and all the writ of sheriff. And we sent him to an attorney of ours. He just called me. I mean, he'd give me regular updates here and there, but he just called me in the last week and said the the tenant is finally out, the roommate, mind you, and you know he finally through the court proceedings got the documentation that was going to allow a sheriff to come evict him if if he didn't move out and that was like august 15th so it took a solid five months to get out a bad roommate so people out there as you're talking to your clients just remember that it's not just about getting deposits and about the damage they can do but it it can be horrific especially in his situation because process he probably had to look at that guy every day and live with them. That right? is that is the craziest part, Tucker. It's an <laughs> 800 square foot house. It's a two bedroom, one bath, and he had a rogue roommate. And it was an incredibly volatile situation. And we were just we were just snickering to ourselves. I mean, in a in a very sad for him manner, how horrific that would be. Like, hey, dude, <laughs> do you mind putting the toilet seat down? <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, when the, the hell are you gonna get out? Right. Be happening. As this guy is defiantly saying, I'm not moving out. And I, I'm pretty sure he stopped paying rent at that point, too. So, wow. Pick the right tenant is the moral of that story. Yeah. I um, mean, we've, we've all had roommates, and I can't say that I've, I mean, we've all had good ones and bad ones, but that takes the cake for probably <laughs> the worst one ever, I would say. But yeah, man, yeah. It's terrible. Awkward. On the brokerage side, we, we're opening a couple new offices. Gresham is opening here in the next week or so. We're going to have a nice uh, little grand opening again. That office is really close to downtown Gresham. It's in the same building as EMAR, which is the East Metro Area Realtor Association. Really excited about that, to have that section of the city having a little bit more coverage and and exposure there. We've signed the lease for our Lloyd District office. That's right off the I-84 on-ramp when you're heading west on 84 at the Lloyd exit. That one has great exposure to that on-ramp there. And I'm actually going to be splitting a lot of my time there. I sit in the Lake Oswego office now, and and that's not going to change. But I'm planning on um, when that office opens up, I'll probably be there a few days a week. And we'll be really focusing on it and growing it as well as finding some good leadership to really take it over and take it to the next level. So we're excited. That's a that's a new market for us. It's basically a downtown office, and we, we have yet to have that. So we're excited. Well, especially considering that I believe you live in downtown somewhere now. So, you know, that works out great. Yeah, that's only about five, six minutes from where I'm at. So I, I've I've heard I actually while I was in Bend this past weekend, uh, the other couple that I went with, the wife works for Providence, and Providence is moving into the that same area, and I, it sounds like they're converting a lot of that mall to uh, commercial space. And so I don't, is that where you guys are at then in that same Lloyd Center Mall area? Yeah, well, there's a huge project underway. There's right now there's currently a movie theater right by Lloyd Center, that is going to be built out and i believe it's going to be a huge apartment complex and and it's going to have some amenities beneath it so that is a that is a very up and coming area i think it's close in you know one thing that people often forget about the east side of town is you have some of the best views of the city because you're looking at the skyline being downtown myself in the coin tower, we have great views, but you're not looking at the skyline of Portland that we're also familiar with. When, whenever you turn on the, you know, the 10 o'clock news and you see those gorgeous views of downtown and the river in front of it, that's from the east side. So I think that's, that's a big push. Plus there's just more land there and there's more opportunities. And so I think the east side is really popping and Lloyd, Lloyd district and some of those other areas 
are doing very well. Yeah, it'll be cool to see that uh, office take shape. And I guess pluses and minuses to a downtown office, but probably more pluses than minuses, which is why you guys did it. So, Well, the, the, the minuses is parking, parking, and parking. I mean, Yeah, that was the minus. That, and that's, that, was, that was something that was big on our um, uh, radar. But, I mean, within that context, we, we feel like we've navigated that the best and picked the best location that has the most options, including its own parking garage and, and yeah. parking spaces. So, Well, with our new mayor-to-be, Hopefully there'll be less riffraff too, which, uh, you know, riffraff and parking are your two negatives really of downtown. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, it sounds like busy, busy. Uh, well, you got a lot of stuff going on. Um, we're super busy right now as well. Last week, as I said, I took off, went to Bend uh, for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I, you know, I really like it over there. I think uh, in an upcoming show, I'm going to have a, a good buddy of mine who um, actually uh, owns the real estate company that we operate uh, underneath of under the heading of TTM Realty. And uh, he moved over there four or five years ago now, and uh, you know he's never coming back. He loves it, and uh, I I can see why I was over there and I toured. There's like a big I forget what the the it's I won't call it a mountain, but it's a giant mound as you're pulling into Bend on the right side that looks over all Bend, and then the back side of it looks towards um, Bachelor and some other stuff. And I drove all up there and checked out all the houses, and there's you know a lot of lots up there that are still available that people are building on, but amazing views, but. Bend is just a really cool place. I think the quality of life over there is great. I think that it's gotten to the point now where there's enough amenities and things going on that, um, you know, I don't think it's it's not the bend of old, but I don't think it's totally reliant on California money now and the California economy to kind of prop it up. I think it's kind of running on its own a little bit. Um, so I, it'll be interesting to get uh, Scott, who's the guy that I know that owns the uh, real estate brokerage over there on the show, and we'll pick his brain here very shortly because um, it, Ben definitely interests me, that's for sure, on a number of levels, personally and business-wise. But um, the, beyond that, one, put, one huge thing in that regards, Tucker, um, is the airport. I I believe for the first time, I heard this not too long ago, and, and I think it was what Ben really, really need, needed and still you know needs, and what will put it really officially on the map is to be able – and it finally, I think they're getting big planes in there that are flying out of there. And not just in the in years past, you know, 10 years ago, you could go to, and I think it's Redmond, right? Where yeah, Redmond. Bend yeah. has its own too, but it's kind of like Lear only type, you know, yeah. on prop planes. But Redmond, yeah. yeah, I think they can fly big jets in and out of there. They do all the time. Yeah, no, in years past, I mean, you could, you could fly to Redmond, but you're just going to take a little small little, you know, plane over to Portland and then, and right. then change over from there. Now I think they've got, you know, big 737s going in and out of there and, not just to Portland. So I yeah. think that's a huge game changer for that area. Yeah, it uh, it really is. And it's, um, I mean, we went out to dinner a bunch because it was a kidless vacation, which is always nice, um, you know, for me these days. And uh, we batted a thousand on the restaurants. Like we went to every restaurant I went to, the food was amazing, which that's pretty hard to do, uh, you know, on vacation. Usually you go somewhere that's like, eh, it was okay. I wouldn't go back, you know, whatever. But it was it was really good. So and then of course you've got the wintertime activities too. But uh, we'll get Scott on. We'll talk more about Ben when he when he comes on the show here in the next few weeks probably. But uh, other than that, we've got um, a project that we put on the market. Um, it's a, an entry level home in Southeast Portland, and um, this will tie into kind of what we're talking about today, which is the market. And I, I will say that within 24 hours of putting it on the market, we had a full price offer. So that you know on on the surface it looks like things are humming along. I will say, though, that I felt like it's not as uh, vibrant out there as it would have been two months ago. Um, what was the price point, Tucker? Two ninety nine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, No, I, I is, think that... Did you have multiple offers? We did, but we ended up going with... The people that 
that jousted and and paid the most and were the most aggressive about getting the offer in quickest, which is basically how I did it. Whoever put the offer in first, that's who I dealt with. It was an investor. Um, now, I would have liked to have sold it to an owner-occupant because it's entry-level housing, it's turnkey, it's closer in Portland. But I feel like the investor market right now is almost stronger than the retail market in certain parts. And um, so that's kind of what we saw there. I, I was surprised. I thought we would have much stronger um, you know, demand and activity from the owner-occupant market being the price point. It's not the most amazing location, but it's 299. It's inside 82nd and in the Foster Powell neighborhood. You're um, well under the median price point. Yeah, well under. So. And, and so it surprised me a little bit. I think that um, you know, about a year ago this time, the market kind of stalled out a little bit too, and we started talking about it. Um, so it, it kind of opened my eyes a little bit. But then on the flip side, you know, we've got a $2 million home in Lake Oswego on Nos Road that's been pending, uh, you know, for the last two months. And we're about a month away from completion now. So, you know, that's, you know, a little bit showing in, in terms of what the market has to offer to, to have a house that's a spec home go pending three months before completion at that price point. You know, it says a lot about the market. Um, so, you know, I've kind of got a little bit of a conflicting view of what's going on right now. I'm not totally certain. And we'll dive into that here uh, in just a little bit. But other than that, we um, we just finally got our building permits uh, this last uh, Friday, or actually right before I left town, I went and paid for them down City Lake Oswego. It was uh, just a, you know, just a cool $40,000 for a couple of building permits uh, for a couple townhomes we're building. So just a little bit of jump change. But uh, we're finally going to be breaking ground on these townhomes in uh, Lake Oswego, right in between second and third and D in first edition. And um, we're really excited about how these are going to turn out. They, uh, I had to go to battle with the Neighborhood Association because they didn't like the way we designed it because they were worried about where people were going to put their garbage cans of all things. And as absurd as that is, that's the reality of what you face sometimes dealing with uh, these people that just like to pick a fight to pick a fight. And um, at the end of the day, we had to change our plans a few times. We had got our variants revoked. It, it took a long time, but we're there. Uh, I think the plans are amazing. The way that we're doing it, just so that you can understand, Steve, and everybody that's listening, is generally when you build townhomes on a, um, on a lot, there's you've got one choice and this is a corner lot so we had two choices how we do it but the one the first choice would be duplex style right door on the left door on the right looks like a duplex each one's its own unit right townhome style and they're connected on the long wall well what we decided to do is split the lot the short way not the long way so the houses are a little bit staggered and they're connected on the short wall which means you share a much smaller wall with your neighbors which means you annoy each other much less but on top of that they each look like an individual home That's as opposed awesome. to a duplex and so this is what the um, we just we were battling with the neighborhood association because they wouldn't concede that that's a better way to build it to give you longer term owner occupants, which betters the neighborhood um, as opposed to having more of a rental property where you're getting constant turnover and lower quality people in the neighborhood. So anyway, we finally got the building permits. It's been a long time going. Uh, we break ground on Friday uh, with our excavation. And so I'm, I'm really excited to get these up and going. Um, you know, there seems to be a lot of new construction single family that's kind of filled the market there in first edition. I've noticed a lot of them are sitting. Some might be overpriced, some might not not be. Um, but I think that uh, it, the, the market's not absorbing those as fast as it has in the past couple of years. So I'm glad that we're in the uh, attached world because our price point is going to be significantly less than the single family. But you'll get a lot of the same amenities with the way that we built this in terms of bed, bath, count, look, um, you know, just sharing the short wall, things like that. So um, I think that even though uh, it looks like there's there's a little bit of a glut of new construction in that pocket right now, I think we're going to be that that product that the market desperately wants, but there isn't any of. So we're, I'm super excited about that. 
That's awesome. It sounds like a great project. Yeah, it really is. Um, and so that's that's what's been going on with us. We've got a, a few other um, or two other little uh, cheaper, I, I guess we call it Portland affordable housing that we're going to be putting on the market um, in the next next week. Uh, one's right uh, 52nd of Woodstock, and uh, that one should go pretty quick. We're going to put it on the market for sub 300. Uh, and it'll be fairly turnkey. It, 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 we're not doing everything. It'll be a little bit of sweat equity involved in whoever buys it, but uh, it'll be a great deal. And then another one down uh, a little further down 52nd. So a lot of stuff going on. And then, of course, we've got all our other uh, higher end new construction we're building as well. So busy, busy, but, um, you know, that's good, right? Yeah, uh, fantastic. So uh, now that we've kind of given everybody a, a little breakdown of what's been going on with us, maybe uh, we should dive into what the one of the main topics of this particular show is going to be, and that's the market. And uh, while I was out of town last week, you sent me the uh, market action report, and I had a chance to take a look at it. But before I talk about it, why don't you uh, give me your thoughts on it and kind of just your overall feel of what's going on out there based on your listings and buyer activity and just kind of what you're seeing. You know, um, <clears throat> we've talked about this a lot here in the past, and I think, as you said, I think it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that is on a lot of people's minds. There was a thread about it in the Masters in real estate over the weekend, which I thought was interesting. Um I, uh, it's a, it's a complex conversation, so I didn't even post much on that thread just because it's, it's a little easier to talk on a podcast than to, oh, yeah. Oh, to, yeah. to voice it all in, in, in a paragraph. Um, because it's, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and, and you, you know, you, you have to be careful when you say, you know, all oh, the market's changing because, you know, there aren't definitives and, and we could wake up tomorrow and, you know, some anomaly could have happened. So, so, but Kind of my take on it is that we're due. I mean, I think I've, that's what I keep have been saying. And I, does that mean we're due to change this month? No, not necessarily. Does it mean it's going to be next year? Maybe. Um, but we did see inventories tick up. Um, they went from, you know, for several months this year, for the last four or five months, they've been in the mid ones. Now it's 1.9, so almost 2%. We kind of had felt a cooler June, so I wasn't surprised by that. You know, the data is saying that um, the the data is saying that it things are less. Uh, there's less activity going on than a year ago, last July. So five percent, five point five percent cooler in pending sales than July of fifteen. Um, a little down from June of two thousand sixteen. Um, Closed sales fell 19.6% short of July of 2015. That's a big number. That's a that's a down a fifth. Yeah, that um, is a big number. So, you know, what I kind of feel confident in saying is I feel like the best of the market is behind us. Um, again, I could be wrong, but it just feels to me, I mean, we're four and a half years into this recovery the downturn was only four years from 2007 to 2011. Now we're, you know, we're well into 2016. So about four and a half years into this recovery. Um, and it just feels like we're due for, we're due for a correction. We're due for a softening. And, um, and we'll go into that a little bit more. And we will even chat about this thread on masters over the weekend and some of your take on it. But the, what, I mean, what's your thoughts, Tucker? Well, first of all, I will say that your client who had that roommate that wouldn't leave, he should probably punch him right in the nose because he probably cost him at least 10 grand <laughs> with, uh, you know, how hot the market would have been in March, April-ish versus August, September. Um, yeah. You know, that, that, I think that's just a reality um, without the market really taking a step back or cooling 
uh, dramatically just time of year alone. Um, so I think beyond being a giant pain, as you know what, he also cost him a few bucks on the on the end of selling his house. Um, you know, looking at these numbers, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, uh, for a while, remember I always quoted like what the the price uh, sales or the average sale price change year over year for Westland Lake Oswego, and it always seemed to be pretty low uh, on previous reports. Um, now I'm looking at it here, and it says that it's 12.1 percent, which you know you've got higher price points and a rather higher uh, average sale price from year over year, um, which is interesting. So I think that that I don't think it has much more to go. I think that's about as much as you can hope for. Um, it hasn't always been there. Uh, North Portland is still at the top of the heap, which I don't understand for the life of me, but it's 13.1%. We all know how I feel about North Portland if you've been listening to the show for any length of time. Um, now, I will say that pending sales look like they have dropped from this time last year in North Portland, 10.6%. So it's almost at the top of the heap in terms of cooling as well. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But um, yeah, interesting numbers for sure. I mean, we've got, I'll just look back at the uh, actual inventory. If two years ago, uh, you know, this number of 1.9 came out, we'd be like, oh my God, it's amazingly low inventory. The market's in fuego. It's crazy out there. And now we look at 1.9 months, we're like, well, I don't know. The market's softening a little bit. So I think we have to keep things in perspective a little bit. But I do think we've hit our inflection point. And I'll agree with you there in terms of, you know, I don't think we're going to seesaw back and forth. I think we're going to steadily see those inventory numbers continue to climb um, back to, I don't know where it'll end up, but probably uh, I would say somewhere mid threes, I would bet is where we get to by November ish. Um, something like that, which is a more balanced market. That's where we probably should be. And that'll put a little bit of downward pressure on prices. Not that they'll go down, but it'll limit them going up. It'll, it'll probably cause a little bit of a flattening of, of people's expectations, which ultimately, you know, keeps uh, wrangles in people's new listing prices and and keeps things you know within reason of what they should probably sell for um so we're kind of you know we're in that point i think where we're cooling um which we have to do i mean it's inevitable right the market can't be bananas forever um but from what i'm looking at here i think we've hit our inflection point and i think that um you know good product priced right in good areas is going to sell in 24 hours for sure or close to it depending on your price point obviously it'll sell quickly let's put it that way um but you know i think the stuff that People are putting on the market that they think is great and it's marginal and they want to price it as if it is great. It's going to sit and it's going to start to, to glut up the market a little bit in terms of inventory. And so I think we're going to see inventory rise for those reasons. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Like I talked about, you know, with our project that we put on the market for $299 in Southeast Portland. I was a little surprised. I think two months ago, uh, if we put that on the market, it's probably uh, gets a lot more owner occupant activity and it probably gets bid up a fair bit. Um, yeah. So seven, eight offers. Yeah, I, I really yeah. believe so. And, yeah. you know, but we did see this last year, too, because I put a property on the market last year in southeast Portland and it didn't sell as easily as I thought it would. And it was a great ranch. It was a double lot, had a big pole barn behind it, which is unheard of, especially if you're into grow operations. Right now, that's legal. So, uh, you know, and it didn't get a lot of activity from owner occupants either because they didn't know what to do with the pole barn or it was just too much property for them, which is crazy to me. But, uh, you know, I, I also learned that owner occupants and the realtors that represent a lot of them. They really don't look at the investment angle much, um, which is it seems crazy to me. But they really, you know, we had a lot of people forego that property because they felt like the yard was too big, even though they were buying it for basically a one lot price. And it was potentially two lots in the future in an area that's getting denser and denser. 
um, similar to the property that we put on the market a couple weeks ago. It has an R1 zoning. Um, it's a turnkey three-bedroom, one-bath house with an R1 zoning in an area that's getting denser and denser. R1 zonings are hard to find, right? Especially in a desirable or somewhat desirable area, which this is. You know, anybody in their right mind that's looking for a house uh, to live in as an owner-occupant, as a three-bedroom, one-bath, one-lot property that you're looking at right now, if it has that underlying R1 zoning, I mean, it's a no-brainer. They should have been tripping over themselves to buy this thing. They, this is like the gift from above that you don't know you get until you go to sell it, um, which is exactly the case. They didn't know what it was. And I think a lot of realtors didn't know how to interpret that either. In terms of value, we had one guy that did right away. He wrote an offer, and that's who I ended up accepting. Now, and there were a few other people late to the party, but um, it's interesting. It's an interesting time right now, but I think bottom line is I think we've hit our inflection point and I think we'll start to see some softening in areas and I think we'll start to see inventory continue to creep. Yeah. My buyer's agents, we, we talked about it in our buyer's meeting. I mean, they're seeing less competition They're We're, we're making offers and they're either the only offer or maybe there's one other offer. Obviously it, it depends on the areas and locations and, and the house itself, but across the board, they're seeing less of that. You know, there was this interesting post on the on, in the Masters um, group on Facebook, and it was basically saying, um, you know, should we be advising our buyers to to buy at this time? Is it still a good time to buy? You know, there's talk of the, Portland, you know, a, a crash coming. She talks a little bit about Portland being an exception because of the influx of new residents in our UGB. Um, so, you know, a couple of thoughts I had on this. First of all, look. And I agree, and there, and there was other comments about this. I agree. It's if if it's an, if you're buying as an owner occupied person who, and you're going to live in this house for quite some time, it's a good time to buy. Make no mistake. In fact, it's even a better time in many ways than it was a year ago or four or five months ago, for that matter, because there's less, there's more inventory and there's less competition. So, what would you rather have? Would you rather have, um, you know, the house you barely like, you know? At, or the house that you you love is really what it comes down to, but maybe a little bit more in price. So it is a good time to buy for that reason. Um, also, interest rates. There's a lot of talk about interest rates being great, and I agree with that. I agree with the the you know the math and the numbers that that you know overpaying slightly should the market soften, but having a great interest rate does does offset that other component. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the idea that the market is going to continue gangbusters because interest rates are low. And one of the reasons I don't believe that is because that isn't really how the last housing boom went. Um, interest rates, the 30-year fixed mortgage started climbing in 2005 and 2006, and the housing market still did really well. Now, they were there was other loan programs out there that were assisting with that, but it doesn't necessarily mean – that interest rates are tethered to how the housing market is doing. And to, to my point being that it is possible the housing market could start to soften and interest rates are still in the low threes. I'm very much a believer in that. Um, you know, the other thing that's interesting about the housing market is is people are lemmings. They're very emotional. I mean, the masses are. So when everybody, you know, when there's um, exhilaration and euphoria in the air, people are buying, buying, buying. As that sentiment changes, it really builds on itself, and it really it, it, it's it's you know I, there's there's talk of the housing market kind of I, I feel like I'm hearing a lot of people going oh no we're gonna go from this great housing market to a, a flat market well it's my experience is that markets are either you know gaining more momentum or losing momentum almost think of it like a I almost think of it like a teeter totter you know that little that little um, 
playground apparatus that kids, you know, are on each side of and they're going up and down. You know, you don't really see those just balanced in the middle and, you know, no one's going up, no one's going down. It's markets tend to be the same way because they tend to overshoot in both directions. And that's because of people's emotions and, and, you know, everyone's buying, 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 buying. And then kind of as it's overshot, um, and affordability is affected, then people are looking around and, and, you know, sentiment starts to change the other way, especially as the media gets involved. Um, and, when the market is moving in a certain direction, it's far more to the benefit of the side that is benefiting it. In other words, when it's in, when it's a strong seller's market, a, a seller is going to get much more for their house th- than when the word comes out, be it the media or however, that the tides are changing. I would I would liken that to if you're on a the back of a flatbed truck, if the truck is going 60 miles an hour and you throw a baseball a baseball, it's going to go far less distance than if you're going backwards 60 miles an hour. And so, as as a house, when when the housing market is still visibly doing well, and you put a house like yours on the market, Tucker, at 300,000. You buyers are much more likely to come in strong in their offers and feel really good and justified about going 320, 330 because they think, hey, the market's going to catch up with me even if I'm overpaying. When word gets out there that that you know inventories are ticking up and maybe we're getting a little bit of a cool down, not only will you possibly not have those multiple offers, but you might have just that one buyer making a on that $300,000 house a 280 offer. So when when the when momentum shifts it really shifts in a big way psychologically in people and I think that's an important component to remember. Um you know, there's there was a lot of talk about us being the cheapest place on the West Coast and I agree with that, but remember people have to sell those big homes in San Francisco or maybe not so big homes but big price tagged places. Um, in San Francisco and other markets to, to, to move here. And if, if that starts to slow down, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that we're not going to be affected. Furthermore, I just don't think we in Portland, <laughs> we don't have that many people moving here that they alone can prop up the housing market. If you look at the data, you know, I, I, it's been a little while, but I think like a year or two ago, the numbers were, you know, the, and how they usually track it is how many people are going to the DMV and changing their licenses. And it's like 100,000 people a year in all of Oregon. Um, we're not, t- I mean, in, in Portland Metro is about 2.3 million people, and, and not all those people are moving to the metro area. So you can't assume that California buyers alone are going to prop up the housing market. If affordability especially for first-time buyers, starts to get affected in Portland because our prices have gone up, 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 up. When that starts to affect Portlanders, it's going to be a problem regardless of how many people are moving here from other other areas. I mean, unless that number just went up into the millions and that's just not going to happen. So um, those were just a few thoughts I had in that regard. What do you think, Tucker? Uh, I mean, you know, I think the market is definitely driven on a lot of buyer psyche um, and seller psyche for sure. You know, I don't know that the the media is going to start putting out is the market slowing question mark headlines, you know, for probably another couple of months, um, I would say. But I, I think that, you know, like I said, I think we've hit our inflection point. 
I think that uh, the only time that I've seen the market flat is between 2009 and 2012, which was basically the bottom of the bottom, and it didn't pick up much steam until after 2012 moving forward. Uh, but prices and everything we were selling, you know, same neighborhood, same house, really, didn't move much from 2009 to 2012. Um, and maybe as we got, you know, maybe the front edge of 2012, we'll say. Um, but, uh, you know, after that, it started to pick up momentum and we've been, you know, varying degrees of momentum ever since then. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it goes one way or the other, but I think buyer psyche plays a lot to do with that. Just like you said, you know, you put a house on the market at 299, if buyer psyche is high, they offer 320, right? Thinking the market will catch up with them. Buyer psyche is low. They think, well, I bet we could probably get it for 280. Let's write the mm -hmm. 280 offer. And so, you That's know, a huge that, swing too. Yeah, huge, a huge swing, swing. With, with just a little bit of buyer psyche change. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know that's a forty thousand dollars swing on a three hundred thousand dollars house. That's you know percentage wise, that's a good uh, that's a good percentage. That would be yeah. considered the market's falling, right? If you took comp, if you comp sale price versus sale price and percentage change, um, people would consider that a falling market. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. I, you know, we've been building and renovating houses and selling them all through the last downturn and up through now the upturn and we'll be doing them again if the market softens or whatever it does oh, yeah. so uh it's just you know it's a matter of just keeping your finger on the pulse and, and moving forward but i think you're right if people are going to be buying houses and they're going to be living in them for the next five six seven ten years um i think it's a better time right now than it was three four months ago uh, yeah. because i think that you're going to get there's more inventory you're going to get a probably a better price and you've got more uh, selection to choose from Absolutely. And, um, and and you're going to get the house you want. And yeah, there's a lot of pluses to a market cooldown. I mean, I, I'm all for it. I mean, we've we've talked internally on our team, like, bring it. Let you know, let's let's have a little bit of a correction so that, you know, all the, the discount brokers suffer. The FISBOs aren't quite as as confident. Um, you know, it's a little bit more balanced for our buyers agents. They they aren't, you know, taking that battle axe into every transaction right. they're going to make an offer on. Um, you know, I will say that, you know, with the hot markets, and this will just tie in the last thing we're going to talk about here, it seems like every time there's a really hot market, some crazy new idea on way to live cheaply pops up or cheaper, right? And so lately, that's been the tiny house thing that you talked about with the clients that you have. And, um, you know, it's caught some steam. It's got some TV shows that are following it and whatnot. Uh, but there was an interesting article that you sent me that, um, you know, obviously the advent of the tiny house uh, comes in large part due to the you know uh, affordability becoming lower and lower for your standard single family residence, uh, which is why people you know mainly millennial types think that the tiny house is a great idea. Personally, I don't totally agree, but hey, you know that's different strokes for different folks. Um, but the article you sent me was was interesting because it seems like there's almost an epidemic. Oh, I don't call it an epidemic, but there's been a big influx of people that just want to plop a tiny house down in their backyard and rent it out or live in it and rent out the house, like you talked about. Um, whereas, you know, that can be kind of a slippery slope. Um, I think that they'll probably disappear to some extent as the market cools. Uh, but until that day comes, uh, it, it kind of an interesting go thing going on. So why don't maybe just recap the article really quickly and give me your two cents on it. Yeah. So this, well, so this was, this particularly caught my attention because of my experience with some clients of mine who, who were moving up here and were bringing a tiny house and they were all about it and so excited. And, and I, I, I again, I told them, multiple times do your due diligence on this you know I, I i don't know the regulations and how that works so you need to be very confident that this is that that property you buy is going to allow this in the backyard well here comes out this article saying exactly that scenario where somebody built it it was a do-it-yourself 
tiny house. I guess they're, I don't know if they're kits or if people are building these from scratch or what, but I know there's an industry that's that's growing around this. I know there's several TV shows on, I think, HGTV about these. It seems to be a trend, a fad right now. Um, and And what happened was these people plopped a tiny house on wheels in the backyard, more or less. I think there was an alleyway or something is what the article says, of their parents' place. Neighbor complained, and um, and then the city came in and started doing doing some research, and then basically said you need to move it. A couple other interesting facts, Tucker. I I kind of found this a little humorous. The, the house is 200 square feet, which is which is a tiny house. That, okay. is, that would be that would be the definition <laughs> of a tiny house. I'm yeah. sure I'm sure your master bathroom is bigger than 200 square feet in it your is. house. And then, but they also had an 80 pound dog, (laughs) which is just a, which is a healthy sized dog for a 200 square foot house. Um, so I, but I have to tell you, Tucker, I mean, I'm, I, I don't, I get it though. I get why the city is doing this. I mean, you know, in, in, at varying times in my life, I've, I've traveled through some of the outlying rural cities of Oregon, one that comes to mind off the top of my head is Dayton, Oregon. And you can go into this town, you know, and you will see a, a, a site-built house, site-built house, manufactured home. Site-built house, manufactured home. Site, I mean, we're talking about a normal street within that city. And I've always, you know, I've, I've always disapproved of that. I was like, what a terrible thing to have. As You know, there's no regulation. There's no protections of your home's value because your neighbor can plop anything across the street from you or to the left of you that that is you know a less desirable type of living structure that doesn't hold its value the same and now that's your comp and and also what you're looking at so so see these tiny houses and they're on wheels if i mean there's there needs to be some some control of that because you're basically in effect doing the same thing um, it, or, or, you know, the same would apply if you put RVs everywhere and where does it stop from there? I mean, can you start putting big tents up in your backyard and, or, you know, neighbor's backyards for, you know, and effectively having some type of homeless shelter. So we definitely need codes to, to keep things in check. Yeah, I will say. So in the article, the couple that the city basically told them, you can't just pop a tiny house down wherever the hell you want and live. Uh, was saying some not-so-nice things about Dan Saltzman, the commissioner of the housing and development uh, on Portland City Council, uh, who basically said they said he championed a bill to help fund homelessness, but then he created two homeless people by telling them they can't pop their their tiny house down anywhere they want, um, which is kind of a, a – and there's some thick irony there. But um, at the same time, I don't think that I agree with them. I just don't think they like to be told no, um, that you can't do that. But, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's like – you know, nobody likes the neighbor that has the the RV that they plop down right next to you, right? Or that you're staring at forever that starts to turn green or that, better yet, an RV that their family comes and people live in it, right? So, um, you know, tiny houses are very similar. Of course, they look a little nicer, but you've got basically people living in the backyard. Uh, I went and looked at a house this last week, believe it or not. The house smelled so bad inside from cat piss that they decided to move out of the house and live in the backyard. <laughs> and there's a house next door that's for sale. It hasn't sold for obvious reason because they've got this set up in the backyard with Christmas lights strung around this tent and they've got a little a parrot out there in a cage. And it was like 1030 in the morning and they were drinking Hurricane and smoking doobies. Uh, so <laughs> as you can imagine, the neighbors probably love them. 
But yeah, <laughs> that's the slippery slope of plopping down tiny houses in any backyard anywhere, right? I mean, it starts out with good intentions, but eventually that's where it goes a lot of times uh, because you have this secondary unit that you can rent for cheap to whomever. And, um, you know, eventually landlords start owning properties and they rent out the front, they rent out the back and nobody's there very often. And it turns into potentially some sort of, you know, almost like a homeless camp back there. So um, I, I think there has to be regulation to it. It just it just makes sense. I mean, it's it's a dwelling where you live, just like if you build an ADU, you have to go through the steps of getting it permitted and getting it approved. Um, and so I just don't think a tiny house shouldn't apply to that. Now, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you got 10 acres Nobody cares. But if you're sitting on 5,000 square foot lots in close in the city of Portland, well, of course people are going to care. I mean, it's just it, it's insane to think otherwise. Yeah. And where does it stop from there? I mean, what if somebody has a quarter acre lot and they they basically set up effectively what would look like a food cart stand, you know, where there's they rent out their their property to five tiny houses. And right. suddenly you're driving through the neighborhood and you're like, oh, there's a bunch of food carts. No, those are tiny houses. It's a little tiny house <laughs> trailer park right. in, yeah. in someone's like a, backyard. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Interestingly enough, Tucker, you mentioned ADUs. And the city, from what I read here, the city is in in favor of ADUs. And if people go about it the right way, they, they're promoting like, hey, build a permanent structure up to code in your backyard. And, and we'll allow that. Um, where it gets where I guess the biggest difference is the wheels. And um, and, and so kind of what this article was saying was that these tiny houses, if they were to put a foundation, would cost about fifteen thousand dollars. Well, the whole advantage of the tiny house is they cost thirty to fifty thousand dollars total. So that's a huge percentage of them. So that's what they're complaining about is they want they don't want to build foundations for these structures and make them official ADUs. They want to keep them as these um temporary you know on wheel structures which and the other concern i have is okay so this tiny house if you look at the pictures now it's kind of cute you know it's new it's only a year or two old what happens 20 years from now as as time goes on i mean are these being upkept even um, five years i mean you know five years five years uh, i mean is this suddenly this you know falling apart structure that's that's not weathering well and not aging well and so yeah, I think there's a lot of challenges. I think we're going to keep hearing about this. This, um, I think we're going to keep hearing about this subject partly because I think um, there's a big fad and a big movement, and there's a lot of, um, again, TV shows and 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 support of this um, this idea, but the the actual real world application isn't quite as easy and clean as people were hoping it's going to be. And and I think the city in this case is. I think they're doing the right thing in the very least. At least they're saying, whoops, pause. Let's talk about this and come up with, you know, what what is allowed and what isn't. Yeah, I think you're right. I also think that uh, tiny houses are going to be looked at in 20 years like hammer pants are looked at now. Just kind of a bad idea. So I yeah. agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I did own a pair back in the day, so I can't say that I'm totally, uh, you know, not to blame for that. But I uh, totally for that agree. Bad. I totally but, agree. Uh, Cool. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think we talked a lot about what's going on with the market. And, um, you know, I think we definitely gave our two cents. So uh, good conversation for sure. Cool. Well, have a good rest of the week, Tucker. Stay cool. Get into getting some water. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. It's supposed to be hot out there, folks. So enjoy what we got left of summer. And we'll see you guys next week on episode 48.
thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.